In our readings last week, we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And this morning, we come to this incident of Jesus walking on the water. And you must remember what Mark's doing here. Mark's a good old-fashioned evangelist. And I was tempted to say that like he's laying out a case, but that can sound like maybe too legal or too academic. It's, it's way more personal than that. I mean, maybe one way I could talk about it is in the late 80s, I believe it was, maybe early 90s, but I think it was late 80s, I had the rare privilege of spending four days with Billy Graham. And, you know, at that point, of course, he's at, you know, sort of the height of his fame. And I remember trying to explain to people that, like, that fame was not the point. Like, I remember what I came away with after those four days with him was his quality of being. And that's what's happening here. Mark is... Yes, he is an evangelist. He's trying to convince. But there's something deeply and richly personal here. We might even say human. That this is a person that like Mark is commending to us. And he's helping us trying to come to grips with this person who multiplies bread and walks on water. Like who is this person? What manner of being is this? What is this? If, if this is God doing something amongst us, what is it? Well, of course we have to learn to come to grips with Jesus. Otherwise, how could we answer our ordinary time question you see on the screen. Right? There's, no, there's no way of following Jesus without first trying to come to grips with him. And so Mark has been telling this really exciting story as we've been reading all summer, Jesus' teaching and healing, of demons being driven out, of storms being stilled, of bread being multiplied, and now this, Jesus walking on water. I mean, you can just kind of hear the disciples going, what's next? Right? Or like, what is this and where is this story going? And we'll get there in due course. But where this story is going is kind of a pivot point in Mark's gospel in Mark 8, where Jesus finally looks at his first friends and says, who do people say that I am? And what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in Mark's telling of the Jesus story, in Jesus' next breath, he begins to describe for the first time his death and resurrection. And so Mark's showing us that like all this is pointing to the knowing of who Jesus is and what God is up to in and through the person of Christ. Well, if you look at the beginning part of your passage, we get a, a really nice picture of something that's very important to us here at Holy Trinity. And that is that in following Jesus, we're aware of being on a simultaneous twin journey, like a journey inward, the transformation of our person into Christ likeness, body, heart, soul, mind, will, emotions, you know, the totality of who we are, transformed as we can through the grace of God and the power of the Spirit into Christ likeness, but near, never merely for our own sake or never merely for our own personal piety, but also this twin journey, this journey outward, that whatever goodness of God that we would ever appropriate to ourselves by his grace and the power of the spirit, that whatever that piety might be in us, that others would experience us is for their good. That's kind of our big vision here. And you can see where we get it in this story of Jesus leaving them and going off to pray. In Jesus's life, there was a very clear rhythm I remember when the message, a little paperback New Testament message first came out, 
I was flying to Australia or New Zealand or something, you know, I had like 14 hours on an airplane, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to read through the Gospels just kind of without stop on this airplane ride. And, and I remember sitting there taking notes, and the one thing that was impressed upon me on that reading was this clear rhythm of Jesus' life where he would split, and then he would be in public, and he'd be off in silence and then calling the disciples, and then in solitude and healing the sick and away and casting out demons. There was this very clear rhythm in his life. And it could have been, I don't really remember, but it could be that in that moment is where I started really picking up on this idea of a journey inward and a journey outward. So Jesus is alone by himself. And when evening comes, the story says that the boat was out on the sea. The, you know, the guys were out trying to get across the lake. And Jesus saw, and if I were you, I would just kind of let your mind hang on that word for a minute or circle it if you've got a pen. Jesus saw them. He saw that they were making headway painfully, struggling against the oars, for the wind was against them. And of course, you know, us reading this as modern Americans, we, we wouldn't get that when, whenever Jewish people especially would have read a story about the sea, the sea meant something to them. It was, it was iconic. It meant the, sort of that deep, profound, unknown that threatens order and even threatens life itself, right? Can you feel that? Like, well, the order would have been, we're just gonna go across you know, one little part of the lake to the other, that would have been order. But the sea doesn't always allow order. The sea sometimes disrupts order and therefore is a symbol of disrupting life itself. To be on the sea in these guys' mind would have been to sometimes be in peril, to face uncertainty or to lack control over one's fate or in this case, even one's own destination. So we're meant to picture here the disciples rowing through the storm with all their might, unaware that Jesus in his solitude sees them. Now, I just know from myself and from working with people like you for 40 years that the hiddenness of God is perhaps the great discipleship mystery. Why is God so hidden? Like, why doesn't he make himself plain? And there is an answer. For in making himself plain, it would take the question mark out of the idea. He could easily just become this cosmic bully that bowled everybody over. And, you know, in that sense, just like putting it, we would say these days, why doesn't God, why don't you just put yourself out there, right? Well, you just have to think that in God's loving wisdom, there is a reason that he doesn't just put himself out there, but that never means that he doesn't see us, right? Are you getting this? The disciples can just feel the tiredness of their shoulders and their biceps. They can only see this, the sort of raging sea around them. They don't see that Jesus sees. Are you feeling this? He sees their struggle. They're just not aware yet that he sees it. And so they're fighting against the wind and waves because they didn't want to die at sea. Actually, they had endured hours of straining at the oars in fear. So they're beginning to be totally exhausted and making little progress because, as the text says, the wind is against them. But again, Jesus is off and he sees us. And so, at least for me, it makes me wonder, is there some sort of purpose in their struggle? And perhaps the answer is, yes. It was an opportunity for Jesus to display his compassion and power, or as Rilke said, his limitless now, right? Because what do we tend to think when we're struggling, 
and we're not sure that Jesus sees us, right? So we're tempted then to think all kinds of things. We might engage in doubt. It could deepen our fear. Some of us might get a little theological and, and again wonder why this isn't happening and maybe put off the full seeing of God to you know, the consummation of God's kingdom, to the new heaven, the new earth. Like We do all sorts of things, right? But I think what this text, among many things, is trying to help us see, if we just think about it for a minute from a formational point of view, is that I think we're meant to see here that knowing that Jesus sees our struggles, even when we don't know he's looking, is is meant to allow us to have confidence in the consistent testimony of Scripture that says, for instance, 1 Peter 4, that trials are not surprising or strange. Or James 1, that they cause perseverance to grow. Or in the famous words of Romans 8, that all things work for good to those who are in Christ. So something like that. It's not all that this story is communicating, but from a formational point of view, something like that. Knowing that Jesus sees our struggles even when we don't see that he sees them, even when he seems hidden, that God uses those moments, that they are kind of the rich soil from which perseverance and and an understanding that this is how God works, but that it works for good, there's something in that for us. So if you look at your text again, it says that the disciples were distressed in their rowing. The ESV that we read this morning says that it was painful. The Greek word there actually means something like tormented or afflicted. So they're, they're like tormented in their, in their physical work against this unyielding wind. And so they're pushed to the limit of their abilities physically and mentally. They're near collapse. And it's at that moment that Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now this gets to another angle on our story. If we were to try to ask and answer the question, why did Jesus walk on the water? Right, I guess he could have just done a Scotty beam me over there, right? But he, he chooses to walk to them on the water. Well, I don't know that there's a, an absolute answer to this, but one answer might be, was that he walked on the water to show the disciples that what they feared the most, the raging sea, was for him merely a path to get to them. Did you catch that? That what they feared the most, and rightfully so, these were, most of them were veteran fishermen. They knew that it was possible to run out of steam like a little boat running out of gas in a storm. They knew that it was possible for the gas to go out of their biceps and their shoulders and their backs. And for them to then be at the mercy of the raging sea and all that that means. And so the very thing that they were afraid of Now, just think of your own context. Think of something that might be troubling you right now that you might have fear of right now. And what if that is the precise soil upon which God walks to get to you? Therefore, not something to run from or deny, but to find God in. And so they're learning here that God's presence and work is not distant but it's an aspect of our world. So that, right, that churning water was the very place that God made himself present. So, so it's our actual life in which God's present is known. So that which is normally hidden, we just, we, we're meant to, to learn here how to discern God's presence and interact with it. 
I mean, there is nothing more fundamental to following Jesus or discipleship to Christ than interactive presence. This is the main thing we're meant to be learning. This is what was intended with the first humans, right? See, when we think of, when we think of Jesus, we often think he's the payment for our sins. He, well, he corrects the fall. He's the payment for our sins, and therefore I get to go to heaven when I die. Now, I don't mean to say that's unimportant, but I just want to say it is a reduction almost to the level of, of absurd, what God always intended was a rich, interactive relationship with cooperative friends. Before Adam and Eve had ever sinned, what was their meaning? Or this is a bit heavy for a Sunday morning, I suppose, but try to answer this question someday. Had the fall not happened, would there have been any meaning for the second person of the Trinity? See, that's what happens when you reduce this story to the story of merely forgiveness of sins. What God was always after was rich, personal interaction with his cooperative friends. Adam and Eve, come work with me. Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and we're gonna have this rich interactive relationship in which you're gonna be sort of you and the people I'll make out of you are gonna be sort of the cosmic first responders. And then church, you know, the birth of the church and the person of Jesus and the work of the spirit at Pentecost, the birth of the church is meant to be the same thing. And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to see, that what God was always doing in Adam and Eve and Abraham and Israel is to create this interactive presence. I mean, this is some of what I think Paul gets at in his writings about Jesus being the last Adam. Right, again, we can't go into that, but just think about like, what, what could that possibly mean? Well, to answer that question, you have to ask, what was the purpose of the first Adam? Rich, personal, interactivity with God shepherding his work on the earth. And so in that sense, Jesus is modeling, he's sign and foretaste of all that God always intended for humanity. And of course, Mark's telling us this story to point at that question mark. Is that what you'd like to do? Would you like it if the call on your life was not simply to go to heaven when you die, but to be God's cooperative friend? How's that feel to you? Would you like to do that? This is what Mark is trying to help us see. So when the disciples see Jesus walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. They were terrified. But immediately, you see in the text, Jesus spoke to them and says, take heart, it is I. Again, uh, don't have time to go into this, but lots of scholars see here something like a mimicking of God appearing to Moses and saying, I am. And, and, and the idea here meaning that Jesus is just revealing himself in the same way that God revealed himself to Moses, or at least in a similar way, leading to this hoped for interactive presence. Well, there's a passage in uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, a little passage on, revel uh, on kind of the revelation of God that I think is super important for us modern people. Eugene writes, Jesus is the name that keeps us attentive to the God-defined, God-revealed life. The amorphous limpness, that is so Peterson, the amorphous limpness so often associated with, quote, spirituality, is given skeleton and sinews and definition and shape and energy by the term Jesus. That name counters the, the abstraction that plagues, quote, spirituality. Jesus is the central and defining figure in the spiritual life. His life is precisely revelation. He brings out into the open that which we could have never figured out for ourselves, never guessed in a million years. 
He is God among us, God speaking, God acting, God healing, God helping. So the text says next that Jesus got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and of course they were utterly astounded. But then Mark gives us this kind of reason for why they remain astounded. He says, for they did not understand the loaves. Do you see that there? Why were they utterly astounded? Well, for, which is you know obviously a basic logical connective, they didn't understand about the loaves. Or as Peterson puts it in the message, none of this had yet penetrated to their hearts. So what were they meant to learn from the incidents of the loaves? And we'll, this will be our, our last idea this morning. So what, what, is, what is it they were missing? What is it that Jesus meant them to understand from the feeding of the 5,000? Well, I think firstly, they were meant to learn to live in and from the resources of the kingdom of God. They were meant to learn that everything comes from someone. Everything, every bit of matter you have ever touched in your life is not mere matter. It comes from someone. And it finds its meaning then, of course, in that one story and will someday be fully transformed into what it was always meant to be. So that then the healings we've been reading about and the demon expulsions and the multiplying of food and the making of water molecules sufficient for walking on, these are all signs and foretastes of the kingdom to come. That's number one. We are meant to live our life in that kind of imagination. Secondly, that it would help us to learn to live with what in one of Dallas Willard's uh, new books that his, actually his daughter wrote um, from a series of tapes, his book, Life Without Lack. Dallas says that life without lack seems unimaginable in a world that's so obviously lacking. Lacking in kindness, fairness, compassion. And with so much going wrong all around us, you know, injustice, oppression, natural disasters, broken relationships, perversity, selfishness, pride, and apathy, So much pain that it seems the best we can do is block it out, live in denial, and just kind of pretend the best we can. And what Jesus is trying to do and what Mark is commending to us this morning is a way out of mere pretending or denial and giving us understanding. Because one of my biggest uh, observations of present human life is that I think we all often feel forced to live our whole lives as if they were kind of the throbbing of a stubbed toe. Can you feel that? Or a thumb hit with a hammer or a bad toothache. Or last week I I had to do something in one of our flower beds and I only put one of my foot in the flower bed for, I don't know, less than 60 seconds probably. And all of a sudden I felt like a sensation on my foot and it was like covered in fire ants. And so, I mean, I still have the sores. I mean, it felt like seven bee stings on my foot and another one on my calf and another one by my knee. And like for three days, you know how this is, right? I couldn't think about anything else, right? And especially when you're trying to sleep and the itching and the burning and no creams work, you know, I tried everything, right? It just like, the, like something that's just like a little bite from a tiny little ant, it like grabs our whole consciousness. Now, I just want you to think of your news feeds of politics and of economic chaos 
and of medical issues and natural disasters and just come to see how we are all tempted to live our lives as if it's nothing more than throbbing pain. So that it's the oceans and our tired biceps and our tired shoulders and back. And it's like, it's all we can see. And this, this story is meant among other things to teach us that while all that's real, Jesus sees and he will soon be with us. Meaning this world will soon, someday be put to rights. And then lastly, what were they meant to, to see in the breaking of the bread? I think in the breaking of the bread, they were meant to see that Jesus had revealed himself already to them in that breaking of that bread. And they were meant to see that that, that is the fundamental reality of God's kingdom, never ending sustenance for his people. This, of course, is what David is relating in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. So now give me your like full attention for 30 seconds here. You know what this adds up to? You don't have to be in charge of your life. That fundamental to our relationship with Jesus is I am in the care of someone else. Now, are you really? It's just so fundamental because when we don't feel in the care of someone else, that's when all manner of hell breaks out. Because if we don't feel in the care of someone else, that means we have to care for ourselves. And and the sense, like the deep fundamental sense of I don't have to be in charge of my life, I'm in the care of someone else, that is the basis for life without lack. It doesn't mean that you couldn't do better with another $5. I don't mean that. This is way deeper than that. Or that maybe you've had too many kids and you need a bigger house. I get it, happens to everybody who has a lot of kids. It doesn't mean that stuff goes away. It means that it gives us a way of being present to that, knowing that we're cared for in it. And so what Mark, again, I wanna say, Mark the evangelist, what he's trying to help us see is a different reality through this question that we'll get to in chapter eight formally, who is Jesus? What Mark's been trying to do in this kind of breathless story he's been telling of all these extraordinary things that we've been reading about, he's trying to help us draw the right conclusions from healings and storms being stilled and demons being cast out. He's trying to help us draw the, conclu- the right conclusions that in Jesus we see humanity in Israel and the church as God intended. And of course, his goal is that we would then have faith in Jesus that we'd have an understanding of how things really are and that based upon Jesus's teaching and his works that we've been reading about, we would then commit ourselves to live in the light of that understanding, that it would give us a basis to stop pretending and to actually give us through understanding of what God was doing in and through Jesus, a real basis to follow him. Amen.